You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Let's begin on a ship again. We're starting to make a habit of it. But this is a ship you've maybe heard of. I hope you've heard of. The HMS Beagle. Ring a bell? This is the ship that, in 1831 carried a young naturalist named Charles Darwin into the pantheon of science. For nearly five years, it ferried him around the world, from Australia to South America to, most famously, Galapagos. The birds, the lizards, the insects, the fish that Darwin catalogued started him towards his great idea, which he formally formulated between 1836 and 1838, back in England. He kept his discovery secret for the next 20 years until the publication of On the Origin of Species in 1859. In it, Darwin explained how all animals and plants alive on Earth today must have descended from some small number of common ancestors, and that we were all placed upon a branching tree of life, pruned and split by mutation and natural selection. Gosh, I love Darwin. (laughs) I assume you don't need a whole lot of convincing about how brilliant he was, but it's still worth a little consideration. Darwin's theory of evolution is the cornerstone of the life sciences. When he came up with it, he knew it was something big, world-changing, but he couldn't possibly have known just how prescient his idea truly was. He didn't know, for example, how neatly his theory would fit with archaeological discoveries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, strata that contained fossils arranged by eons of advancement. He didn't know that there was such a thing as DNA, and that sequencing the genetic codes of animals would reveal a direct line of ancestry perfectly attuned with his observations. But, if you really want to be baffled and amazed, there's one other big thing Darwin didn't know. The guy who pieced together that life descended generation by generation, shaped by the forces of natural selection and mutation until family lines bifurcated into distinct species? He didn't know where babies came from. And neither did Gregor Mendel when he discovered the laws of inheritance, or Mendeleev when he discovered the periodic table of the elements, or Pasteur when he invented vaccines and confirmed the principles of germ theory, or James Clerk Maxwell when he invented color photography. No one, no one in the entire world knew the answer to arguably the most basic and integral question of existence until a year before Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. I... That's dumbfounding! Imagine being a person in the late 1870s, getting your first look at a telephone. You call up your friend Betsy and say, Isn't this amazing? I can hear you all the way from Boston. And Betsy says, You think that's amazing? Did you hear about where babies come from? And you haven't! For thousands of years, the most vital and vexing mystery conceivable sat there, tauntingly. Every five-year-old the world over had thought to ask it, but until well after the Industrial Revolution, no parent was able to produce a single right answer. Wrong answers, though. That's different. Boy, howdy, is that different. This is The Constant. A history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today, for our second season finale, we're looking at those wrong answers and the slow, jerky, juking advance that eventually got us to the truth. I'm calling it, Let's Talk About Sex, Babies. 
But we've already started at the end, and that won't do. We've got to slow things down, somehow. So, allow me to do what any over-eager yet insecure American male would do. Think about baseball. The game hasn't begun yet. Everyone's getting hot dogs, getting beer. While the crowd makes its way to the seats, most of them probably know that babies have something to do with sex. The earliest evidence of this knowledge dates to somewhere around 7,000 BC, in the remnants of an ancient city in modern-day Turkey. In the late 1950s, archaeologists there found a plaque showing a man and woman embracing on one side and a mother with a baby on the other. Most anthropologists think this understanding goes back much, much further, to our earliest days of human culture, some 50,000 years ago. But it's not a given. After all, babies don't show up until nine months after sex, and signs of pregnancy take weeks. Lots of intervening things could happen in the meantime that might be mistaken as the cause. And that's when pregnancy does occur, which is relatively rare. Under the simplest conceivable understanding of the relationship, you might expect a woman who had sex a hundred times to be saddled with a hundred babies. And that obviously wasn't right. Still, it should have been obvious that sex at least played an important part in procreation. Virgins never grew pregnant, except under suspect circumstances where an unwanted blushing neighbor boy might have been seen scurrying out a window. Not to mention, early people probably could draw the inference from other animals they had contact with. One of the main outliers about human sexuality is that it's veiled, hidden. Most animals rut or heat or otherwise display pretty obvious signs that they're ready to get it on. Our ancestors, who might have watched antelope or rabbits or dogs going about their nasty business, would have had a pretty easy time figuring out the cause and effect on the beasts, and probably could have intuited they were cut from similar cloth. As our players take the field and warm up, a good portion of the crowd probably has some seriously wrong-headed beliefs even about the most basic mechanics of the game. Some of them believe that, while sex is a prerequisite, the most important thing is to be touched on the head by a ghost, or bitten by a fish on the thigh. A lot of them think it's important for a man to be involved, but that more men is all the better. Telegenate the belief that multiple male partners can contribute to the development of a baby was widespread in the ancient world and persisted for a long, long time. For some peoples, the idea was that a baby was built over the course of a pregnancy, like packing a big, spermy snowman, and that it was important for the expectant mother to get as much material from as many and as varied of partners as possible. Do you want daddy to be the best warrior or the best storyteller? The smartest or the fastest? Why choose? That's the lay of the land, as our first batter takes the plate. Hailing from the Greek island of Kos in the 5th century BC, please welcome Hippocrates. Called the father of medicine, generously, but let's not get stuck in the weeds here, Hippocrates is responsible for a very mixed legacy. On the one hand, he was the first person to advocate for physical causes of illness instead of curses and demons. On the other, those physical causes mostly came down to humors, which sent medicine down a 2,500-year dead end. What about our central mystery? His belief was that animal conception was pretty much like plant conception. Which is true! Except that Hippocrates didn't understand plant conception either. He didn't know that seeds were the result of fertilization, which is an easy enough thing to misunderstand. But that misunderstanding put him off on a bad foot. His theory for animals and people was that the male created a seed, and the female merely provided the soil from which it could grow. There were a host of problems with this idea, obviously, not least of which was, if all mothers did was serve as an unimportant incubator, then why did so many babies resemble their mothers? Get used to the general framework of this question, because it's going to trip up most of our hitters. There was a proposed answer, and it came from another analogy. Grapes. Winemakers from before Hippocrates' time understood that grapes grown in different soils provided different sizes, colors, and flavors. So, maybe that was a mother's meager influence. Not very convincing, because as critics pointed out, there was no soil you could plant a grape seed in to grow an apple. Hippocrates goes down swinging. 
one out. But the seed and field theory lives on. Despite its shortcomings, it becomes one of the three main theories that persists for millennia onward. And that is something that I don't know how to fit into our baseball metaphor, which is another problem you should probably get used to. Next at the plate, hailing from Greece by way of Macedonia, your favorite and mine, he once took a strike swinging at a throw to second, it's Aristotle. Okay, all right. If you've listened to the show before, you probably think you know how this is going to go. Aristotle is going to say something silly and probably offensive, and then the whole world is going to blindly agree with him in spite of all reason for a couple thousand years. If that's what you're expecting, yeah, well, you're, you're largely right. Aristotle could have fouled off all day with the bevy of weird opinions he held around babies. He thought that a fetus's gender was controlled by the direction the wind was blowing, literally, and that newborns didn't get souls until they laughed, which always happened on the 100th day exactly. He also thought that testicles only existed as counterweights to the penis to keep the shaft from getting coiled and snarled like the cords behind your TV. And, as always, his views on women were... ghastly. Because a boy who was castrated failed to develop male secondary sexual characteristics, Aristotle presumed that women were just men castrated in the womb, and that idea of female as broken or incomplete and therefore inferior was a sawhorse Aristotle returned to time and time again. But I said I'd defend the guy sometime, and this is as good a time as any. On the question of where babies come from, and uh, let's just call that question generation, because that's what most of antiquity called it. On the question of generation, Aristotle was working with a broken bat, and the pitcher was spitting all over the ball. Consider what he had to work with. He knew that, sometimes, after sex, women got pregnant. He knew that men, in the course of sex, produced semen. For most folks of his time, and long after, those were the only givens. Aristotle, though, realized he knew two more things about women. The first was that if the female didn't have a menstrual cycle, she couldn't get pregnant. Girls too young, women too old, or in some other mysterious way devoid of menses, didn't get knocked up. He also knew that once a woman was with child, her monthly bleeding stopped. This was tantalizing evidence. But of what? Aristotle drew a conclusion that met with the only familiar experience available, and although it was super duper wrong, I have to admit that faced with the puzzle he was, I might have gotten there too. His theory was that menstrual blood was basically like milk, and that semen worked to help curdle it into a fleshy cheese baby. Strike three. Two outs. Let's note that neither Aristotle nor Hippocrates were the first or only people to reach their respective conclusions. Throughout the world, we find texts that echo either the seed and soil or the cheese baby ideas. The Old Testament contains both, but it was these two figures who became the spokesmen, the official mascots of their theories. Next up is Galen, born 129 AD in Greece. Galen was the most accomplished physician in... Uh, well, in all time, at least up until the Enlightenment. He practically invented anatomy, pharmacology, pathology, neurology. Oh, looks like a storm is gathering. Early Christianity is taking firm hold of Rome, and it is not happy about all of this medical investigation and discovery jazz. So, we're all hoping Galen can get this at bat in under the wire. The pitcher waves off a sign from the catcher. Galen is attempting to do anatomy in an era where, increasingly, the fleshy world is looked at as sinful and baseless. The pitcher makes the throw, and... It's a hit! Galen appreciates that there must be a primarily biological explanation for the creation of new life. He's rounding first, appreciating that because offspring can resemble either or both parents, both male and female must have an important part in the process. He stumbles a bit on second when he argues that God creates nothing unnecessary and concludes from this that the female orgasm must have a crucial generative function. But he's still running. The ball is going. Going. It could be. It might be. It's caught at the left field wall. What a shame. That's three up, three down. No runs, no bases. 
The caught line drive that Galen hit went like this. Male and female were mirror images of one another. The vagina was just an inward penis. The ovaries were internal testicles. There was only one sex, but that sex was sometimes popped out and sometimes curled in. I, I want to be clear that when I say that the ovaries were internal testicles, I mean that literally. That was what they were called. Female testicles. And Galen's belief was that they produced a female semen that created a fetus when it mingled with the male kind. Hey, is it worth noting that our dugout is populated exclusively by men? Every player on the whole club. In one sense, that's not surprising. While lots of things are going to change over the course of this game, patriarchy will be our North Star, our constant, our peanuts and Cracker Jacks. Still, you'd think that given the obvious familiarity many women had with the issue, one of the many men on the team might have at least asked a question or two? I'm not saying that excluding women from the deliberation necessarily slowed its progress. Women didn't have access to any special pool of exclusive evidence, per se. But it sure as hell wouldn't have hurt. And at the least, we would have avoided century upon century of explanations that took the inferiority of the quote-unquote fairer sex as a given. But, alas... There was one hypothetically feminist takeaway from Galen's one-sex hypothesis. Women needed pleasure. As opposed to a lot of doctors and thinkers throughout the centuries, Galen believed that female orgasm was crucial to conception. Because the male organ only released its semen with climax, it stood to reason that the female semen operated the same way. So if you were a husband who wanted a baby, and you definitely did, because that was the whole point of everything, you'd better take pains to satisfy your wife. Lots of books were written, seminars delivered, teaching sessions offered, to make sure men were bringing women to climax. Like the seed and field theory and the milk baby theory, Galen's one-sex idea spread, lasted, and influenced for a long time and way far out. Throughout the first millennium, from England to Germany to Carthage to Persia to India to China, we find rich records of how to fuck like you mean it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, the uh, players are returning to their dugouts. The storm is on. The groundskeepers are out with the tarp. We've got ourselves a rain delay. Yeah, I'm not sure the rain delay analogy is working either. But there's an important shift that begins even before Galen dies in 210, and that shift comes basically to dominate the Western world for more than a thousand years. The church thought prying into matters of flesh and blood was indulgent and sinful. Christ was returning any day, no matter how many thousands of days he'd been returning any day for, and when that happened, bodily matters would be made obsolete. The spirit should be man's focus, not earthly things. To Christians of the first millennium, studying plants and animals and rocks was no different from spending one's time at a strip club. We're still examining the human body, let alone its hidden, sinful, sexual parts. If God had wanted us to know how sex works, he'd have put it front and center. 
But he hadn't. Not only were there no outward clues to explain generation, but God had not inspired his authors to put the answer to print, either. The general view of early Christians was that everything worth knowing had been there for Adam and Eve, and that since the fall, we had only driven ourselves deeper into a wilderness of crowded ignorance. One couldn't create or ascertain new truths, because anything new was, on its face, apart from the word of God. The reins of intellectual repression battered the tarp for century upon century. During all this time, there were essentially four answers in our quandary. Hippocrates' seed and field notion, Aristotle's milk baby, and I know I should stop saying milk baby because it's unsettling, but what can you do? Milk baby, milk baby, milk baby, and Galen's one sex theory. The fourth answer, which was favored by the church and by all proper Christians, was even simpler than these. Don't ask that. Just when it looked like the game would be called, the clouds parted, and our next batter approached the plate. He might seem like an unlikely player in our game, with his long white hair and beard. He's the Bo Jackson of our story, playing not just in our baseball game, but in math, astronomy, literature, music, science, engineering, and, most of all, painting. It's Leonardo da Vinci! In his 40s, da Vinci turned to anatomy. I'm sorry, that was so stupid. <laughs> but I'm not recording it again. That's what we're going with. In his 40s, da Vinci turned to anatomy. Unlike Galen or Aristotle or Hippocrates, he dissected human bodies trying to riddle out their secrets. And he did a pretty fantastic job, given the elementary tools and grime and gore in front of him. It's our first hit of the game. With da Vinci rounding first, he dissects a convict who has just been hung and discovers that an erect penis is filled with blood, not air, as virtually everyone before him had thought. And if he didn't know that men get erections when they're strangled to death, well, now you do. Mazel. Da Vinci keeps running, sketching a dissected woman five months pregnant, with curled-up fetus nestled within her womb, umbilical about its feet. He's safe at second base having built a repository of detailed anatomical drawings the likes of which the world had never seen. But the runner is stranded. When da Vinci dies, his notebook passes from hand to hand, finally making its way to the Royal Library in Winchester Castle, where it sits, basically unread, for the next 300 years. The unnotable artists and royals who overlook da Vinci's treasure trove make up our next couple of hitters. They whiff it. The inning ends and Leonardo returns to the bullpen. No runs scored. Batting next for the... What? The global humans? That's awful. Let's forget about that. Uh, if you could also overlook the fact that our innings have no bottoms, that'd be nice, too. I told you the metaphor strains. Innings have no bottoms. That's close to saying something, isn't it? Uh, let's stay on the lookout for a way to use that phrase. Anyway, next came William Harvey, a British physician of the 1600s. Harvey had a wonderfully detailed mind. He didn't believe in magic and worked to exonerate at least six accused witches, but he's best known for being the first person to figure out that the heart, rather than being the holding place for the soul or the mind or a slow-burning life furnace, was just a pump. In 1651, at age 73, Harvey published On Animal Generation, the result of his long foray into the matter. In it, Harvey finally and fully refutes Aristotle's milk baby, last time, I promise, and Galen's one-sex hypotheses. Harvey had spent years examining every form of generation he could come up with, from ostrich eggs to deer embryo to humans. In the end, he reached an incredible conclusion. Omne vivium ex ovo. All life comes from the egg. We're going to call that a single. I know, I know, it feels like a bigger hit than that, but Harvey managed to muck up his advance a bit. For starters, he hadn't actually seen eggs in any mammals, and he still was pretty wrong about what they were. In Harvey's view, eggs grew spontaneously within the womb. The ovaries, which again at this point were simply called female testicles, had nothing to do with it. And the egg itself was, at the start, a completed vessel. Today, we'd more accurately call what Harvey was referring to an embryo. Still, it's a start. Okay, we're getting into the power part of our lineup, the real heavy hitters. All of them Dutch, weirdly. 
First to the plate is physician Regine de Graff. De Graff is the Thai cop of our bench, pissy and irritable. He had a penchant for hurling insults at those he disagreed with, which included, uh, well, nearly everyone. He first gained fame by working out the structure, if not the function, exactly, of the testicle. What were testicles, anyway? Even today, we call them balls, but de Graff created a process in which he would soak a testicle until it opened up like a paper flower, revealing a long strand of unraveling tubules. But it's his eponymous discovery for which he's most famous. De Graff wanted to find the eggs that Harvey had confidently assured him should be there in mammals, and he succeeded. In his book, he claimed to have seen hosts of eggs within the ovaries of various mammals, cows, sheep, dogs, and, most importantly, rabbits. Did I say ovaries? Yeah, that's right, ovaries. Not female testicles. De Graff confirmed once and for all that the twin structures within mammalian females bore no relation to those within the nutsack. They made eggs, not female sperm. Thus, ovaries. This feels like a home run, right? But, no. Unfortunately, while all of these conclusions were spot on, de Graff had arrived at them sort of sideways. He said he had managed to find eggs within all these ovaries, but that wasn't true. What he had seen were what we now call graphene follicles, which hold eggs until they are released. de Graff had viewed these follicles in rabbits intently, thinking they were eggs. Then he'd mated the bunnies and reopened them to check for change. And indeed, some of the follicles had opened. A few days later, he took a look at the womb. There were as many bunny embryos in the womb as there were burst follicles in the ovaries. So he, reasonably but wrongly, concluded he'd seen the eggs. There's another reason why we can't give de Graff better than a base hit, though. And that's that he, like Harvey, believed that the egg held the whole shebang. Semen played some catalyzing role in inspiring it to get to work, but otherwise it served no purpose and contributed no materials. In fact, neither of them believed that semen even came into physical contact with the eggs. They hypothesized that whatever part ejaculate played in pregnancy, it was roughly akin to magnetism, working at a distance. So let's call that a bunt. I know that's not very generous, but I'm really married to this stupid baseball analogy now, and I've got to work it out somehow. There's a man on first, and a man on second, and our third power hitter is up. Jan Swammerdam, another Dutchman. I know, I'm as confused as you are. As he approaches the plate, he drops the bat and begins weeping uncontrollably. The coach is trying to console him into playing. No, wait, there's a coach now? No, 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 let's, let's not kick up that mud. The point is, Swammerdam was deeply religious, and he held to that rain delay idea that studying earthly bodies was sinful. He should be only studying and praising God, and every moment not spent in prayer racked Jan with guilt. At one point, in 1673, he disappeared with a Flemish mystic, cloistering himself from temptation. But he was back in Amsterdam by 1676, in spite of himself, and in spite of the threat of eternal damnation. Swammerdam just couldn't stop himself from... Studying insects. He loved them. He just loved them so much. And his at-bat will be spent on them, because Swammerdam's batting for butterflies. In 1669, he cut open a caterpillar and found within it the limbs and wings of the butterfly it would someday become. Well, not that caterpillar. That caterpillar was dead. But other caterpillars would become butterflies, and they already had all the necessary parts. Up until then, the assumption was that butterflies were born out of dead caterpillars. They were separate life forms. But Swammerdam knew better. And he knew that, in large part, because of a recent invention. The microscope. Swammerdam gets a single, too. From his studies of insects, he furthered the notions laid down by his preceding hitters. Now, there was the beginning of a way to understand how complicated things came from simpler ones. Silkworm to moth, egg to child. That leaves the bases loaded for Antony von Leeuwenhoek, our fourth Dutchman. Leeuwenhoek... Lew... I'm going to call him Tony. How about Tony? Tony wasn't a scientist. Not formally, at least. He had no university training. He couldn't speak or read Latin. He was a businessman. He owned a textile store in Delft, and he wanted to get a better look at the quality of his thread. But the magnifying glasses available to him were only so good. So, 
Tony started making his own lenses, and soon enough, his own microscopes. In the late 1600s, Tony basically invented microscopy, an invention he didn't share easily. His fellow Dutch teammates sitting on base, for instance, would have loved to get a taste of his microscopes. But no dice. Tony put everything he could find under the lens. Pond water and vinegar and dental plaque and fleas and diarrhea, yeah, you heard me, and, most interesting to us, semen. One night, upon completing coitus with his wife, no word on whether Tony here hoved to the Galian notion that you've got to please the woman, Tony, well, there's no nice way to say this, so let's not bother trying. He splooged in his hand. Then he leapt up and grabbed his microscope. Through it, he saw a world of tiny, teeming creatures. Animalcules, he called them. Millions. Lewenhoek was, right then, the first person to ever see sperm. And what did he think about that? Meh. Yeah, meh. Take that, Jad and Robert. Whatever you may have heard on Radiolab, Tony didn't think finding sperm was any big deal, and he certainly didn't connect the discovery with reproduction. He'd seen tons of tiny wriggling creatures in everything he'd ever taken a look at, yes, including the diarrhea, so what was the big whoop? No, Tony assumed that sperm were just some sort of parasite that lived in semen, and that first response became pretty widely held throughout the world for the next couple of hundred years. To be fair, he didn't continue to hold it. Er, uh, that view, not the semen. He stopped holding the semen presumably pretty quickly, but he stopped holding the initial view of semen pretty soon too. He believed that there was something special about semen as a whole, even if he discounted the sperm themselves, and he wrote the Royal Society to tell them as much. They responded, saying that de Graaf and Harvey had both concluded that it was eggs which were important to reproduction, and what did he think of that? He didn't much like it, is what he thought of that. And so he set about proving that semen, not eggs, were the crucial element of generation. While taking a microscope to the reproductive track of a recently boinked dog, Tony saw the sperm again, though he could not see any semen. So he quickly did an about-face and declared that sperm were the big thing. Not semen, not eggs, sperm. He didn't know how they would do it, but he knew that somehow six or seven of the millions of sperm within the dog would grow into puppies. Well, not these sperm, because he'd killed the dog, but, you know, in principle. This is how we first snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. As Tony von Leeuwenhoek winds up to hit a dinger, a fight breaks out. Swammerdam and de Graaf never got along in the first place, but it's the spitting between Leeuwenhoek and the others that manages to truly clear the bench. For the next hundred years, the game was held up by a grudge match between those who championed the sperm and those who stood up for the egg. You'd think someone might have successfully brokered a compromise, but no, it had to be one or the other, egg or sperm. The spermists didn't believe that there even were eggs in mammals, while the ovists held that sperm was just the distant magnetic catalyst that got eggs going. So set on their infighting, they didn't even question some basic problems with both ideas. Namely, heredity again. If only the egg were important, why did some babies have daddy's eyes? If only the sperm, why did some have mommy's nose? Not only did the rivals fail to answer those obvious questions, but they went even further down the absurd rabbit hole into a truly obnoxious idea that held court for more than a century. Preformationism. There was already a butterfly inside the caterpillar. So, it was argued, there was already a human in the egg, or the sperm, depending on which side you're rooting for. Here, again, was the thumbprint of religion. Creation was the exclusive mandate of God, not people and dogs and rabbits and fleas. The act of sexual congress was base and gross and sinful. How could two people humping behind a dumpster, and I'm, I'm not trying to sex shame here, hump behind all the dumpsters you want if that's your thing, but please be safe. How could two people humping behind a dumpster rival the majesty of God? It was ridiculous, conceited, and prideful to suggest such a thing. But the most obvious alternative was also pretty uncomfortable. That God was watching every dirty coital performance and interjecting himself somehow in the crucial climactic moment. No, untenable. God isn't a pervert. Although some of that Old Testament... No, no, it can't be. Preformation, then, was a great way out. 
In Eden, God had created not just all the animals in the garden, and not just Adam and Eve, but all the animals that will ever be, and all of Adam and Eve's descendants, down the line until Revelation. Inside of every woman, there are eggs. And inside each egg is another woman, except the ones with men, but give it a second. And that woman is also full of eggs, which are also full of women, which are also full of eggs, which are also full of women, and so on and so on, ad infinitum, from the beginning of time until the end. It was truly a, ready, bottomless inning. Huh? Huh? Or, if you were a spermist, it was the same, but with tiny little people in the head of each sperm. Exactly the same, except for one major problem. In each ejaculation, there are 200 million or so sperm. And even in the most ideal of circumstances, that ejaculation produced one baby. Maybe two. What about all the others? Why would God sentence the whole of the population of Brazil to die every time people bone? How could that be part of his design? It was a cruel idea. And more than that, it was useless, purposeless. And nothing in God's creation was without purpose. The spermists tried to wiggle their way out of this conundrum, but they couldn't. Some proposed that maybe those sperm which did not go on to become children instead got transferred to the child. Or else, maybe they were ejected out into the air as fine mist that eventually came to rest in other men to be ejaculated later. Pretty weak tea. So the influence of the spermists fell. Never completely away, particularly because of Leeuwenhoek, his prestige and his microscopes, but the Ovis were winning the war. Yet it was set to be a Pyrrhic victory. For all the focus on proving their side right, nobody was doing much to further the cause of actually, like, getting things right. Particularly, again, that question of inheritance. If God had created all the creatures of the world in one fell swoop and nested them within one another by the millions, then why did children take after their parents at all, let alone both parents? And why were there birth defects? Miscarriages. Briefly, if this was the way of the world, why did the world look like something so entirely different? With our runners exhausted from punching one another, and still no score on the board, our next player takes the plate in a fresh inning. Pierre-Louis Moreau de Morpeches, director of the Academy de Sciences in Paris. In 1750, Pierre went to Germany, where he'd heard about a peculiar family. The children in this family had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And so did the parents, and the grandparents, and the great-grandparents. The whole family line was besought with polydactism. What were the odds that that would happen by chance from all those godly nesting dolls the ovists and spermists insisted upon? Pierre could tell you. He did the math. He put the odds at one to several trillion. Impossible. More importantly, the extra digits passed down the family line on the mother's side and the father's. Nobody had a theory to explain that even though it was just an extension of the same obvious question everyone had been asking for hundreds of years, how come babies look like both parents? Pierre takes the plate with a new theory, that both male and female contributed material to the production of offspring. Nobody had said anything like that in the better part of a hundred years, but a lot of Pierre's idea was older than that. He believed that there were two sperms, male and female. It was Galen all over again. But this time, a tiny bit sciencier. The sperm of male and female were made up of little bits from all over their respective bodies. During sex, those little pieces, a tiny bit of nose from the father, a little bit of eye color from the mother, are drawn together by gravity. Gravity was all the rage in 1750. Until a new being was formed from the component parts of both parents. This... This... This was really close. Pierre thought the particles from each parent might be passed on in a dormant form over generations, so that curly hair or blue eyes could skip a generation, but then come roaring back. It also explained birth defects, you can probably piece together how that worked, and other such imperfections that were impossibly difficult for the preformationists. So let's call that a double. 
The specifics of how this all worked were Pierre's, but a lot of other biologists, physicians, and other scientists were coming to similar conclusions. Their school would come to be called epigenesists, and they'd take on the preformationists. But this was all done basically in thought experiments and arguments. Nobody could devise much in the way of an experimental or observational framework to prove themselves right, so the whole debate went dark. It was a war of attrition that ground into an exhausted armistice. Pockets of fighting kicked off here and there, but for the most part, people just gave up. We'd reached the end of what microscopes and anatomy and experiments could tell us. For the next 20 years, batters swung themselves stupid, striking out and stranding Pierre at second. But there was one great exception to that dead period. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Lazaro Spallanzani an Italian priest and biologist with an incredible creative capacity for creating experiments. He took up the generation riddle by looking at frogs, who he observed and determined to be copulating externally. The male frog mounts the female, she spills her eggs, he ejaculates onto them, and the two go about their merry ways. Up until Spallanzani confirmed this, no one believed it was possible for sex to happen outside in the open. And now that he knew it did, Spallanzani developed an experiment that was as ingenious as it was adorable. Frog boxers. Spallanzani sewed tiny little frog boxer shorts that he fit upon half of his males. Then he let them, pantsed and pantsless both, to copulate with the lady frogs. As you might expect, the eggs from the females who'd boinked the bareback boys developed into tadpoles. The eggs that had only been held under guys coming in their shorts didn't. Then, he took a little bit from the messy underpants and rubbed it on some of the unfertilized eggs. Miracle of miracles, they developed and hatched. The pitcher releases the ball. Spallanzani hits. It is way out, way out. He's going right past first, rounding second, and he finds his way safely to third. A triple for Spallanzani. With one brilliant and again, adorable experiment, Spallanzani bested just about everyone. De Graaf and Swammerdam, who thought that semen activated eggs from a distance as by magnetism? Wrong. It's got a touch. All the ovists and spermists who thought one or the other alone were the answer? Wrong-o. You needed both. Pierre, with his revamped Galenite two-semen notion? Nope. Obviously, eggs went with semen, not more semen. Spallanzani went on to perform other experiments, inseminating dogs and moths and learning all kinds of neat stuff. He was great. He was just... He was just great. Except that he missed one thing. Like Lou and Hulk had thought in those first few months after he spied them, Spallanzani didn't think sperm had anything to do with any of this. He thought, like many did, that they were some sort of unrelated parasite. Like tapeworms of the penis. Hey, that's another great image for you. Tapeworms of the penis. You're welcome. Spallanzani does his frog boxer trick in the 1780s, and then resumes the radio silence of listless cluelessness. There's a meeting on the mound that goes on for more than 40 years. It's not until 1827 that our next batter takes the field, in what is finally our final inning. His name was Karl Ernst von Baer, an Estonian explorer, scientist, meteorologist, biologist. Ugh, imagine the student loans on these guys. Von Baer dissected the ovary of a dog, as many of his predecessors had, and he searched by microscope, as many of his predecessors had. But he did both together, and he did both well. 
And that is how he came to find what, over a century before, de Graff had thought he found. A mammalian egg. Von Baer went on to find eggs in all kinds of mammals, including, importantly, people. All life comes from the egg. For real this time. But Von Baer, like Spallanzani, also believed that sperm were parasites. So... He gets a powerful hit up the third base line. It's thrown back. He lands on first base. Spallanzani remains at third. Bottom of the ninth. Man at first. Man at third. Up to bat comes Rudolf Virchow, the Prussian physician who finally put the concept of humorism to bed. That's the second mention of humorism. If you don't know that story, go back and take a listen to Take None of These and Call Me in the Morning from our first season. Virchow's contribution to the generation riddle is indirect, yet essential. In 1855, he published a book with an epigram playing off of William Harvey's from 200 years before. Omnis cellula e cellula. All cells come from cells. A few years before, a biologist and a botanist had figured out that both plants and animals seem to be composed of cells. That put folks on the scent of any great number of biological mysteries. What makes up life? What powers life? But Virchow is the one who put together how living things grow cell division. Finally, a viable alternative to the preformationists and the epigenesists. You didn't have to have a medley of tiny body parts pulled together, and you didn't need all life pre-existing in near-finished form. Cells could divide into multiple parts, with each containing all necessary stuff to sustain themselves. And there was another big hint here, one that would push us right up to the brink. If all living things were made of cells, then maybe eggs were cells, too. And, even more crucially, maybe sperm were cells. Bases loaded. I know, I know. Why isn't Spallanzani running? Because I want the bases to be loaded for this and shut up about it already. Up to the plate comes an unlikely hero. A German biologist named Oskar Hertwig, who suffered under the shadow of his more successful and esteemed brother, Richard. Richard was a professor in Berlin, he discovered cell mitosis and meiosis. Richard was a bigwig. Oscar, by contrast, was banished to the hinterlands. Well, Naples, which seemed like pretty fantastic and temperate hinterlands, but scientifically it was a lower rung. When he arrived, he didn't even know what he was there to study. No one seemed to much care. His station was cheap enough to run, so whatever he and his fellow scientists worked out, that was fine. It didn't take long for inspiration to strike. The local fishermen were consistently hauling up their favorite delicacy, a delicious marine treat that Hertwig and his fellow scientists came to enjoy, too. Uni. Which, for the non-sushi eaters, is sea urchin eggs. Delicious, delicious sea urchin eggs. But while scarfing them down, Oscar realized that they were more than just delicious. They were transparent. You could see right into them. In 1875, Oscar plopped an egg in front of his microscope, settled into view, and then squirted a little bit of urchin sperm onto the slide. You know what he saw. Because you've seen it. Certainly on film, television, maybe even in a biology class. But up until this spring afternoon, no one in all of history ever had. Every child, since we were huddled in caves, every philosopher, every scientist, every frustrated potential parent, Aristotle and Galen and Darwin and Henry, all of them, everyone, had spent their lives fumbling aimlessly and frustrated in the dark. And just like that, plunk, Oscar Hertwig found the light switch. A sperm wriggled up, penetrated the egg, and just like that, the two cells became one. He watched, then, as this new fused cell divided into two, and those two into four, and so on, and so forth. He conducted the experiment over and over. What would happen if he separated the two cells after their first division? Just like that, he knew where twins came from. Forget the baseball metaphor. This was like magic. This was the veil torn back. This was the secret of life revealed on a nondescript day in a nondescript lab to the lesser of two brothers. We don't need baseball to show how exciting that was. 
on the other hand. There's nothing like a grand slam in the ninth. There you have it, folks. Season two in the bag. Thanks for coming along with me. This episode was a doozy, and I'd have never gotten through it without the printed wisdom of Edward Dulnick. As I researched this episode, I found myself constantly outmatched and beaten to the punch by Dolnik, whose book The Seeds of Life tracks this mystery with greater detail and greater charm than I could ever hope to compete with. I ended up cribbing from it way more than I'm comfortable with, because there was just no choice. It's that definitive. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's one of the best pop science books I've read in years. Now it's time for a bit of a break. The organizing principle of this show's production schedule was meant to be eight weeks on, four weeks off, eight weeks on, so forth, so on. I'd love for that to remain true. But while I'm really proud of the work this season, I I ran myself ragged making it. More importantly, I had to cut stories and segments that required more production and voice actors because of the tight scheduling. I'd like to have more of that stuff, again, going forward. And so season three won't begin until I'm confident I can do each episode exactly how I want to. That should still be sometime in June, hopefully earlier than later. But if you haven't subscribed already, take a moment to do so. That way you'll be first in line when we return, and you'll also get whatever extras and stuff I come up with to tide you over in the meantime. And while you're subscribing, or if you already have, please also take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. The show is growing fast, and that is spectacular. I'm so thankful to all of you who made this weird little project of mine a regular part of your week. That's just... It's just humbling. Really, really deeply humbling. Reviewing and rating us on iTunes is the second best way to encourage others to join us as fellow Constantines. Did we did we decide on whether or not we wanted to use that? Whatever. Uh, the best way, though, is still word of mouth. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell strangers at parties. Let's reach as many folks as we can with this gospel of fallibility. Oh, and and don't forget to leave your story of getting things wrong on our hotline. That number, once more, is 708-761-0493. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And I'm looking forward to bringing you more stories of my own. But, until then, from the home of the Cubs, and... Is that it? Do we have another baseball team? No, I think that's it. Yeah, from the home of the Cubs, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. Pierre Louis Moreau de Maupiat. Maupertius. Maupertius? That sounds not French at all. Maupertius? I don't know French pronunciation guides. Is that a problem? Is that a problem with this gig? With this job? It feels like a fucking problem with this job. 